0: the infant church met for worship in the courtyards of the temple of jerusalem there was ample space afforded there in the massive stone paved courts and in the sheltered colonnades and of the porticos. um i see i do not i i think i forgot to let you know rocky i've got the pictures of this but that's all right um well, uh, we can you Remember the pictures, right? You remember the, the, the columns that were there and the roof over top with the uh, exterior wall of the temple at the back? And they, there was ample place for the church to meet in that place. It was a mild climate, and so that was not a problem. It opened, those colonnades were open to the uh, weather, but with the roof and, the, and opening into the massive courtyards, the church could have had many places to meet there in the temple courts. When believers left Jerusalem to form local churches throughout the ancient Near East, they at first found lodging in synagogues, and there was a conversation there that generally did not last very long, and so for a period of time they met in synagogues, but as time passed, they began to meet largely in homes. For the next three centuries, local churches typically met in the homes of one of their members. Christianity was a persecuted sect in the Roman Empire, so constructing church buildings was not possible. When Christianity was legalized, many of the first church buildings were what? They were pagan temples that converted into Christian churches, and sometimes the people didn't change, just the orientation of that service changed. But as Christendom expanded westward, churches began to construct buildings for worship. Many were quite elaborate. We would never argue that a church building is a necessity, and just on the basis of our history as a church, we clearly would say that. For 300 years meeting in homes, initially in borrowed space at the temple courts, we would never say that a church building is biblical, that it's part of God's purpose for all of his people. The church is people, and some of the most fervent healthy, productive churches in the history of Christendom have been those who have met in homes, some of them in barns, some of them in caves, and even in catacombs, under-earth graveyards. So never would we say that a church building is essential. However, having said that, one of the benefits of dedicated church buildings is that they announce Christ is worshipped here. And I think there's some benefit to that. I don't believe it is evil for a church to choose to occupy a non-distinctive building. I think that's a choice a church can make, sometimes out of necessity. In recent decades, out of trendiness, there has been a trend For church buildings to look like a warehouse, like a shopping mall, like an office space, and to kind of blend in with the secular world around. Church steeples are designed with a very opposite orientation. Steeples are not necessary. They do not innately curry favor with God. Am I qualifying this enough here? I want to keep doing this. If you know of a church that looks like a shopping mall, well, we were in one of those once too. So we certainly don't throw any rocks at people that take that approach as such. But a steeple is designed to say here is a family of God. At least in the best sense, church steeples boldly proclaim Christ's presence among his people who he continues to build by his word and spirit. Now, I realize most people driving by this building and seeing a steeple on this building don't draw that conclusion, but some do. Some remind us of that on occasion. Such an announcement of God's presence in this world by means of a building is not biblically mandated, But if understood properly, the symbol of a church steeple does have a significant relationship to a temple theme which pervades Scripture. So we have to be very cautious there not to overstate the case, but I think we also have to exercise caution not to understate the case, which perhaps we're a little more tempted to do as a church. We encounter a significant installment of the theme of temple today in our journey through the book of Ezra. And I'll bring it back to us as a church at the end, but before drawing out that connection to us and our place and what it means to us in our particular setting here, we consider in Ezra 6 the construction of Israel's second temple. And this uh, we have by way of written text, a description of where how we are to understand ourselves here, but certainly as we look at the uh, life of the people of God. Ezra chapter 6, by way of review, I was glad this was here because I got everything up on that. (laughs) Uh, 605 BC is the first wave of exiles that were taken to Babylon. We remember that first wave, there were three waves, and then in 586, the third wave, so God disciplines his people, And they are taken into exile in Babylon, and in this third exile, or this third deportation, Solomon's temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. They take the hardware back to Babylon, cutting up the big stuff, keeping the small stuff intact. And we know then, as time passes through the 70-year captivity, Cyrus ultimately issues a decree, and 50,000 Israelites return to the land. The altar then is built, and the temple foundations are rebuilt soon after that return. This much we know. For approximately 16 years, the temple reconstruction project now has stalled. So as you look on this, on this chronological chart here, the altar has been rebuilt, the temple foundations have been rebuilt, but there is now a significant period of time. Haggai the prophet begins to preach, and we've read the first chapter of his book today, he begins to preach somewhere around 520 or 519 BC, calling the Israelites to consider their ways and to get back to the temple project. So for about 16 years, for those of us tracking with the history of that, this church, that was pretty much exactly the amount of time we were at the Glenhurst site. If you were there at the beginning and there at the end, you have a real good sense there. Some of you are 16 years of age. It doesn't work very well because you don't remember the first years. But And there's others of us that remember multiple 16-year periods of life. So just try to put yourself in there and think, that's a fair amount of time, isn't it? 16 years, this project languishes. It does not move forward. And the reasons, as we've read earlier today in the book of Haggai, are really not good reasons. The Israelites have been building their own homes. They have gotten busy scratching out a living in this very hard place, this hard land. It was fruitful. It could produce. But particularly around Jerusalem, that was a difficult process involving a lot of terracing and a lot of challenges. It was not convenient for them to rebuild God's temple, they did not have the money and the times were relatively hard. Going back to Ezekiel chapter 5, we read this in verse 1 of this, uh, as we see here on the screen, this Haggai preaching at this place and time. We read of it here in Ezra 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem." The prophets of God were with them, supporting them, and I think we should understand that to be throughout the project. They continued to preach, continued to encourage, continued to say this is what we should be doing as the people of God at this stage in salvation history. Now remember in chapter 6, the governor of the land paid a visit to the construction site, and he asked the Jews to provide some evidence that they had the authorization to build this temple. And from all that we can gather here, this could mean the end of it all. It could mean that everything is shut down. Would the king, Darius the king, actually look for the uh, document that Cyrus issued allowing the Israelites to build? Chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. Now, therefore, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shephar Bazanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. This is Darius' word, having found that document. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on this site. If there's any question that Darius means business, there will be execution for somebody who fights this and resists this movement. So he says, verse 12, in his response, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. And you can hear the cries of the Israelites rejoicing in this security of their situation. The key phrase here in verse 12 is the God who has caused his name to dwell there. Now, I, I believe that Darius the king is saying more than he knows. The God who has made his name to dwell there, it is possible he has been coached by Israelites who are surrounding him there in the Babylon, what was Babylon. But King Darius might be saying more than he knows. At any rate, Mount Zion in Jerusalem was the place God chose for a temple to display his glory to the nations. And this is a clear and evident movement of God over the centuries of salvation history. You remember the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud that came in and filled the Holy of Holies and resided above the Ark of the Covenant. It was clouded. Uh, from sight such that no one would die who saw that the high priest going into that area but God's very presence was there in a unique way his presence among his people and theologically speaking there are there are roots to this that go very deep in scripture I think really even to the very beginning chapters of scripture Theologically, the temple was seen as something of a restoration of the Garden of Eden, where God met with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve met in His presence, and it was their task to take His presence, so to speak, into all the world as they subdued it for the glory of His name. When in the garden they began to subdue the garden for the glory of their own name, they were cast out, and the project ended. But the temple is something of a reinstitution of this project. It is very significant to God's people. The garden had been barred. Paradise had been lost. But the temple provided now some knowledge of the presence of God with his people. They don't walk with God in the cool of the day in the same way that Adam and Eve do. But the temple does provide at least restricted access. Access to God. Is provided here at this temple, but now it's with sinners. With Adam and Eve, it was walk with God in the cool of the day and relate to Him as creatures made in His image with no barrier. I don't even know what that means. I can't pray to God with no barrier. I bring a sinful heart before him every time I seek him in prayer. Every moment of the day that I strive to walk with him, there is sin. That stands as a wall between. But of course the temple sends the message that that sin is real, but that there's yet a way in. That there is a way to deal with sin on God's terms. And so a vital function of the temple was to display to the nations the presence of God among His people in the Holy of Holies. Restricted access, but access nonetheless. And so for all who love the glory of God and long for His glory to be magnified in this dark world, the idea that the temple is being rebuilt is a thrilling prospect. Even though it happened two and a half millennia ago, God, our God, was working to display the glory of his name to the nations through his people. The thrill, of course, is not merely with the ancient history, but with our participation in this agenda. And again, we'll return to that at the end. But before we consider that, let's first work through the narrative that's before us. We'll do this fairly fairly quickly. But we read in verse 13 of Ezra 6, Ezra 6, 13, Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, Euphrates includes Jerusalem, Shethar Bazani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. What does this verse tell us? We see God providentially securing the construction of the temple. Cyrus's decree comes in 538 B.C. The Jews can return from Babylon to the Promised Land. They can rebuild the temple. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had once destroyed that in 586, but they can now rebuild it. Darius, the current king of Persia, lends the full power of his throne here, verse 13 to secure this privilege for God's people. And how does the governor who is with them on a daily basis, or could be, how does he respond? He supports what the emperor has said. And so Israel is secured uniquely in this spot. After 16 years of stagnation, the building project continues. Now that's looking at the outside, all is well. God has moved. The emperor has spoken. The local governor is on the page, with the project. And there is a serious threat against anybody who gets in the way. But now we look internally to the project. Verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Through the ministry of the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, what do we see? Word and spirit combining to resurrect a lethargic people, and a stagnant project. The building program prospered. Notice that word in verse 14a. It prospered because God's people listened to God's word. Now There were a lot of other factors involved, but this is crucial. They heard the voice of God. They heard the word of the Lord through the prophets. These prophets rebuke God's people for their faulty and selfish priorities. They say, you must turn from your ways You need to prioritize the project of magnifying the presence of God among his people in this world. It's not wrong for you to build houses. I know that it's difficult right now. In fact, I've been withholding the rain to get your attention because your priorities are off. Get back to the project, the prophets speak for God. And the people heed, they listen, they move. They repented of their selfishness, their lack of faith, and they got busy building. And the leaders are at the front of the pack. The leaders lead, the people work, and the temple of God begins to rise on Mount Zion once again. The middle of verse 14, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It appears that Artaxerxes just kind of gets lumped in there. He wasn't around at this time but he will come in later and he will supply some of the uh, service of the temple as well as have a part in the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. But most arresting in this second half of verse 14, what is it? They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. That's a great line. That is a great, great line. It was Cyrus that said they could go back. It was Darius that found the document and said it was fine for you to go back. But how does the author see it? It's the decree of the God of Israel. That's why they're back in the land. No offense intended, Persian rulers. But the author here gives glory to whom glory is ultimately due. First and foremost, this project was decreed by the sovereign God of Israel. You remember the first temple, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The first temple had at its lead King Solomon. One of the most powerful, wise, wealthy kings in recent memory in these days and in all of Israel's history. At the first temple they had an army. A very powerful army supplied by chariots from, and horses from Egypt. It, 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 nobody was messing with Israel. They were strong as a kingdom. And as that strong kingdom, they built a temple to the glory of God. Well, look at it this time. Everything's reversed. There is no king of Israel. There is no strong army to back this up. There is just the providence of God that supports this building project as the temple goes up again. And what does it tell us about our God? God can use a powerful king at the head of his flock. God can use a powerful army to secure the establishment of the announcement of his name at the temple. Or God can use somebody else's king and army. It doesn't matter because he rules supremely. So here he uses the Persian king and the Persian army to supply for his people. He's just as capable of accomplishing his will either way. In a position that appears to us to be a position of power, in a position that appears to us to be a position of weakness. It doesn't matter to God because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so there's such a helpful reminder to us here in such a direct application sometimes we get in situations that do seem indeed impossible we don't have an army behind us and we don't have a king before us but our job is to obey him and to trust him when we do that in humble dependence god can move heaven and earth to fulfill his purposes through us What has God done in this world through strength? Great things. What has God done in this earth through weakness? Greater things. He is the sovereign Lord, and we must never forget it. Now, His ways don't always play out as quickly or as ideally as we would like, but He's the same, Lord. Lord. He's the same Lord that is operative in your life and mine and in the weakness that we face. Whatever trial we face, whatever difficulty we face, whatever weakness we find ourselves in, we do not need to go around seeking a miracle. If God wants to do that, praise Him for it. But we don't have to desperately plead that He creates some miracle for us. What we need is to trust Him as the sovereign God of the universe. And that means that he rules in every aspect of my life and can be trusted to that end. Israel's learning that here. We are learning that here as we look at the circumstances of the first temple and the circumstances of the second. God's people do not need to overthrow governments to advance his kingdom. We are called to submit to the governing authorities as long as they do not force us to oppose god's authority and as we walk as faithful citizens of the land we're in god can turn the king's heart and he does here so we read verse 15 and this house was finished on the third day of the month of adar in the sixth year of the reign of darius the king it was finished it was completed they didn't get it done on the first try, 16 years of nothing, but now it's actually completed. It's a stunning turn of events. When the last wave of Jewish exiles was carted off to Babylon, the dust of their heels settled on an utterly decimated temple site. Solomon's temple had stood as a glorious symbol of God's presence for some 373 years. It's a long time. 373 years go to the east coast look at America's history you won't find anything there that old this temple had stood a long time it had been desecrated numerous times it had been used as a pagan temple of worship to the gods of the land by God's people but that temple stood when the exiles turned the lights out on Jerusalem in 586 and left for Babylon it would have taken unusual faith to think that a second temple would ever be built on this site. It was lights out. But God's temple once again stood on Mount Zion. And what do you think they did? Once again, the temple declared the presence of God among His people, and it bid the nations to come. And So for her part, we see next that Israel celebrates God's grace and restores the temple service they're secured on the outside, there's the preaching of the word and the diligence of the people to bring this temple to completion, and now it is time to rejoice in what God has done. Verse 16, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. You notice here the reference to Israel, it's not a throwaway reference, Not just Judah and Benjamin here, but a unifying emphasis on Israel as God's covenant people. The priests and the Levites are singled out because they would have been at the front of the celebration, unique responsibilities in that dedication ceremony. And on that point, it's just an interesting note, but the word dedication is the Hebrew Hanukkah. In 165 B.C., there would be a festival to commemorate the Jews' purification of this temple that was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. Hanukkah. Coming up here soon. But the idea of the word here, of dedication, it is something that man makes repairs or purifies, thus Hanukkah, the purification of the temple in 165. But so here, something that man makes, repairs, or purifies, and then is consecrated to God. This temple is consecrated to the name of the Lord. They dedicate it. They say that this is why it exists, and they are filled with joy. Verse 17, they offered... They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Notice there again, the tribes of Israel. This is Judah, this is Benjamin, but here we have reference to the tribes of Israel. Israel again is being seen as God's people in 12 tribes. There's no more divided kingdom, there's no more kingdom. They're just God's people now. And 12 male goats representing their sin and their coming before God for purification. Now if you read the Old Testament through on any regular basis, I pray you do. Start today if you don't. But keep reading the Old Testament through. It is so informative to us in our walk with God and so essential to understanding the New Testament. But if you just have any recollection of this, These sacrifices, how do they add up to Solomon's sacrifices at the dedication of the first temple? I mean, I looked at this right away and said, there's a few zeros missing here, right? 22,000 bulls Solomon offered, 120,000 sheep. This is a really small celebration, it evidences their poverty. It evidences the difficulty of their situation. Just 600 rams and lambs compared to 120,000. Far fewer people, far fewer resources. This is a very humble setting. But you notice the people are filled with joy. What's said here is not the people wept because they couldn't offer the sacrifices that Solomon did. They weren't as significant as his people. All it says is that they were filled with joy. And verse 18, they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. The Bible directs and orders their worship. They turn to the scrolls. And they find out what they are to do. And King David had organized 24 courses or large groups of priests, each of which served at the temple for a week at a time. It's one of those fantasies I have of going back in time. I want to go back and be there for a week as a priest. Boy, you would catch so much that you can't catch in the text of Scripture. But they, they're organizing, sorry that was a sideline, but uh, back to it, they, they were organizing to carry on the service of the temple. God's temple was open for business on Mount Zion, that's the point. Sacrifices would be offered now on a daily basis, Israel would draw near to God here, and the approach to God on the basis and the authority of his word was announced to the peoples of the land. Uh, let's ask a couple of questions, a few questions here as we contemplate this rebuilding project. The temple was, well, what did it accomplish? What did this second temple accomplish? The temple was certainly less glorious than Solomon's, we've noted that, but it was no less useful. In fact, the building served God's people for 585 years. 585 years. I think I can give you that here. As we look at the, these uh, dates that are on here, uh, I'm missing something, but the first segment, 959 to 586, is about 373 years. The completion of the second temple, 516, about four and a half years after it began, to 70 AD, is 585 years. They got the job done. Now this temple was desecrated numerous times along the way. It was repaired, it was rededicated, it was cleaned out and purified along the way. But it stood for nearly six centuries. At the end of its story, Herod, King Herod in Israel took it down dismantled it, and rebuilt it right away. He was so careful to make it clear he wasn't destroying the temple that he got all the supplies on site before he began to rebuild it. So we kind of look at that as just simply the second temple remade, but it was a glorious place. When you see the descriptions of this building that Herod built and the building out of the Temple Mount, it's clear this Temple Mount is growing. It's expanding and it is bringing glory to the name of God in a unique way the jews spoke to jesus in john 2 of this project taking 46 years coming to completion at least as far as the temple is concerned in 20 or 19 bc but jews speaking i'm sorry but in the end the temple was destroyed by the romans in 70 ad and it was a devastating destruction 70 AD, it was, had, it was really still under construction. It had been for, for a generation. But what's going on here? Why? That's just what happened with this second temple. It was really effective. And it served God's people for a long, long time, although, again, not always used well. But what was going on here? Why is the construction of this second temple such a big deal? Well, put yourself in this situation. For Israel, the temple is a continuing teaching site to remind God's people of how you approach God. You approach Him on His terms. It emphasized the truth that God is a holy God and that we are a sinful people. It emphasized the truth that atonement required the death of a substitute. You could not miss that in the ritual ceremonies of the service of the temple. And God's people were drawn to this site to remind them as well that they were to live a life of prayer in the presence of God. To the world, what did it say? It proclaimed the same message to the nations surrounding Israel, the approach to God, the need for sacrifice and for blood to be shed for the redemption of God's people. But it also was a means by which God intended to expand the knowledge of his glory and of his name. This temple had a project that went way beyond its walls. And if, if, if we were somewhat dense in approaching this temple, we might put it in terms of every other temple and say, well, that's a very nice temple. Well done. But we would not get the real point, which was to carry a sense of the presence of God and to display it to the whole world. Situated prominently on Mount Zion, the temple was intended to announce God's glorious presence among His people. And the temple was to be something then of a restoration of the Garden of Eden on this hill. So what does it have to do with us? As we put that together with where we are in our setting, this same project is in operation today. You might say, well, what do you mean? Uh, 70 A.D., the building was destroyed the second temple's gone it's not there today boy do we know that it's not there today but before it was destroyed jesus said what he said destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up john 2 and verse 19 he spoke of course not of the literal temple but of his body But in doing that, he is equating his body with God's temple. Jesus declared that he was the presence of God on earth. The presence of God once hovered in the Holy of Holies in literal light above the Ark of the Covenant. But now Jesus says, I am the temple of God. Here is the presence of God in my person The Gospel writer John caught this idea when he said in John 1 and verse 14 that Jesus tabernacled among us. Identifying Jesus in in this unique, subtle reference to the tabernacle where God met with His people. Jesus was the very presence and glory of God displayed for all the world to see. Do you see then why Jesus said to His followers, it's going to be good if I leave you, think of all the crazy things Jesus said that from the apostle standpoint. That had to be up there at the very top. You're leaving, and it's good. How can that possibly be good? But what did He say? If I leave, I will send my Spirit. And by sending His Spirit, the risen Christ creates a living new temple of His body, His people. It's not literal, of course, but we as the body of Christ now announce the presence of God in this world. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter caught this so clearly. I don't... um... Yeah, it's not working. Let's go to Ephesians 2. We'll just have to see it there and just take just a little more time. Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Paul makes this very... Notice here the connection between God's people and the temple theme. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. We are, verse 19, saints and members of the household of God. That is, parts of this building. Verse 20, "...built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." You are a dwelling place. You are, by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of the risen Savior, you are the new temple. You're alive. You're growing. You're expanding. That's what the temple was always intended to do, to expand the sense of the glory of the presence of God on the earth. It was not able entirely to do that because of its location, but now you are the new temple of God, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, Peter says, as you, as believers, come to Him, Christ, the head of the church, the head of the body, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This stone the builders have rejected. They turn away from Him. Verses 6 and following. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may, what is it? Notice it here. You see it? Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And when you receive mercy, what do you do? What you do is you declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. I believe the scriptures teach that there will be a millennial temple in Jerusalem to which the nations will stream. But in the meantime, we, the living church of the living Christ, serve as this living temple in a waking world. Our task internally as a kingdom of priests is to heed God's word and offer to him spiritual sacrifices, which I trust we've gathered here to do today. Our task externally is what? To advance the display of God's presence in the world until Christ comes to rule. Now put this together. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Drawing, I think, directly from the festival he was attending where massive candelabras were stationed at the four corners of the temple and the night sky was illumined by these massive oil lamps at the temple. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the one who illumines this world. And what did he say then to us as he prepared his people For his departure, you are the light of the world. You are the light. You are the ones who are to announce the glory of my name. And what did he say in Matthew 18 as he prepared for his ascension, as he sent out his disciples? Go into, going into all the world, proclaim the gospel. We take the light of the glory of the presence of God as the living church into every nation To every people, tongue, and tribe. As Beale puts it in his book on the temple, we expand the borders of God's presence by influencing the world as God's temple to display the glory of his saving presence in the world. That's our task. God's presence with us grows, I quote, grows among his priestly people by their knowing of his word, believing it, and by obeying it, and then They spread that presence to others by living their lives faithfully and prayerfully in the world. He goes on to say that the mark of the true church is an expanding witness to the presence of God. Are we a real church? The evidence of it is an expanding witness to the presence of God. To be God's temple so filled with his glorious presence that we expand and fill the earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely so this takes on numerous points of application the one is that if we're going to be a true church a healthy church that Jesus in which Jesus finds pleasure There will be a continuing church discipline process to purify the display of Christ's glory. There will be a continuing missionary support throughout the world as we continue to press the presence of Christ's glorious name into various parts of the earth, using our resources, using our influence to see that name spread. There will be in our lives a witness. We are the light of the world. How ridiculous it is to put a light under a basket. We exist to announce that Christ is the final sacrifice, whose death is the Lamb of God, taking the place of sinners, fulfilled the sacrificial system centered at the temple in Jerusalem. You want to walk in the presence of God, you cannot do it as a sinner. But with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying in the place of the sinner for our sin, we can enter into God's presence. This we announce. This message we spread. This is why God gives us life to carry on. So does it have anything to do with our steeple? Not much. But a steeple has no inherent value. A church building has no inherent value. It's just a tool, nothing more. With or without, we can proclaim the presence of God in this world, but we can do it with. If our steeple rises to announce the presence of God in this waking world, let it stretch to the heavens and announce His name. Obviously, our steeple can do that no more effectively than could the stones of the second temple. What was the key? The key was the presence of God with his people. With the first temple, what was inside the Holy of Holies? And what was at least acknowledged in the second temple of what was to be in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God? Likewise, our testimony is not a building. It's not a steeple. Our testimony is that we are the people of God transformed to see the revelation of His truth and of His saving grace and to display God's presence among us. And so we use not only our building, we use our homes to proclaim this truth, to evidence this presence. We use all of our resources to be the light of the world that God has called us to be. But we do pool our resources to use this home To announce that same message. The steeple on this building is meaningless on its own, but if it stands as a signal that says God's presence is with his people in this world, turn from sin and trust the light of the world, the risen, the crucified, risen, and returning Lord Jesus Christ, then it's a good thing. May we in this way. And in a thousand other ways, press the message as the living temple of God. This is our calling. This is our purpose. Let's stand together. We're going to spend some more time together, but let's stand, stretch, and let's reflect. Let's look to the Lord. Let's meditate on who we are. Let's think about our calling in a few moments of reflection.